is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. If you want to know why businesses are having trouble finding workers, you may be able to blame COVID. A recent estimate finds one million Americans have been forced to leave the labor market because of long COVID. We'll go in-depth into the impacts on the economy. Doctors are starting to pay even more attention now to another Omicron sub-variant that's been found right here in Southern California. And we do have some positive medical news. Scientists say they've developed an antibiotic that can stop antibiotic-resistant bacteria. We talked about the heat wave in the U.K. still there, baking the country. Record high temperatures have never imagined set today. We go in-depth into that, the possibility that President Biden could declare a climate emergency. Movements getting bigger to unionize workers, local Korean barbecue and other Korean-owned restaurants, but there are some barriers. And a war between fast food giants brewing in a small Missouri town it's because of what's being written on the outdoor signs. So you think uh, when the president signs that declaration, will the temperatures go down? That's right, yes. Right away, uh-huh. as soon as he signs it. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's going to put up a giant fan. <laughs> Why do I have a feeling that that is what's going to happen? <laughs> We start, though, with long COVID in the workplace. Katie Bach is an economist with the uh, Brookings Metro. She testified earlier today at a House subcommittee hearing on the matter. Katie, thanks for being with us. That sounds like an, uh, just a staggering figure. And is it accurate that a million, I guess a million plus Americans are out of the workforce because of long COVID? Yeah, thanks for having me on. So actually, I think that's a pretty dramatic understatement, believe it or not. Um, when I first uh, did an estimate on this, I came up with about 1.2 million people. Um, but that was before we had better data on how many people actually have long COVID. We know from a recent Census Bureau survey that around 16.4 million working age Americans have long COVID. And using a really conservative estimate from the best studies we have, about one quarter of those would be out of work because of their illness. Now, are these people who just are debilitated to the point where it's like, you know what, I can't look for a job or I'm having, you know, the brain fog where I'm so fatigued I can't go out? Or is this uh, people who are on some sort of disability or they're taking leaves of absences, maybe a combination of? Yeah, it runs the gamut. Um, you know, two things I think to call out. One, this is sort of an insidious disability. Um, now, there are people who get COVID and their long COVID is so immediate and so devastating that they are just out of work from the moment they have the acute infection. But there are a lot of other people we know anecdotally who go back to work and they're struggling and maybe they cut back hours a bit and then maybe they cut back hours a bit more and eventually they drop out of the workforce. Um, so, so that's kind of the first interesting point. The second is on disability. Again, we don't have great data on this, but at this point, the number of anecdotes has sort of become data we know that a lot of these people are getting denied for disability. So a lot of them are stuck in this really awful limbo where they can't work, they aren't getting the accommodations they need from their employers, and they can't access disability. And, and they're getting denied because it's difficult in many cases to prove that their symptoms are related to COVID. Is that it? That's my assumption. Um, I, I think we we probably also shouldn't ignore the fact that in some cases it takes the Social Security Administration, you know, over a year to even review a case. So in some cases, their cases probably haven't even been looked at. But yes, I think the biggest challenge is it's not like we have a test that says, oh, yep, you're positive for long COVID. 
So until we have that, and until we have it as like a recognized category, do you just hope you have a really good and understanding boss? A really good and understanding boss or a really good and understanding disability claims reviewer. And and do we know, uh, do you know, whether many of these people who are out of the workforce, did they have... Uh, really significant cases of COVID to begin with. They were hospitalized, they were in ICU, or were in many cases these people who had either mild cases, they thought anyway, or maybe even asymptomatic to begin with? Yeah, that's just one of the things that's so striking about long COVID is a lot of these people did have mild or even asymptomatic cases. All right, that's Katie Bach, economist with Brookings Metro, testified earlier today at a House subcommittee hearing on people out of work, long COVID, and the workforce. Doctors and scientists are becoming more and more concerned about that Omicron subvariant BA 2.75. It's been found in the L.A. area. Now this comes as BA 5. I know it's hard for everybody to keep track of these, but it's sweeping through. With us again is Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist and clinical professor of preventative medicine at USC Keck School of Medicine. He's out with a new opinion piece in The Hill. It's titled Bad News. COVID-19 numbers are pretty meaningless. Doctor, thanks for being Back with us. I, I want to get to all of that uh, in a second, but I want to go back to uh, the segment we had just before. We had an economist on who just testified before Congress about, uh, uh, she says, a million plus, and she thinks that's an undercount. Americans are now out of the workforce because of long COVID. And many of these people, she says, are people that had either mild cases or were asymptomatic to begin with. That kind of then gives the lie, does it not, to this sort of, I think it's becoming a a kind of attitude in this country that if you get COVID, it's not going to be a big deal now? Well, the Government Accountability Office came out with a statement in March 2022, actually, that said about 23 million people uh, will be suffering long COVID and about a million uh, may be out of work. So long COVID is definitely real and long COVID is uh, affecting uh, people, it looks like more uh, women than men, and more people who've recovered from hospitalization than who have been, you know, just mildly symptomatic, and more unvaccinated than vaccinated. So, you know, we're still learning a lot about what the impl- implications and long-term effects. Newer data from that March report, though, which is what she's referring to, suggests it may be um, about one in twelve. Um, at about three months and about six months, it seems to drop um, a little bit further than that. So we still have a lot to learn about what the long-term effects of COVID and infection will be. Let's talk about these uh, new variants. BA5 was a big concern. Now there's this other one, BA2.75. What do we need to know about it? And, And we always talk about, oh, the next one's always more contagious, more contagious, more... Are they actually more contagious or is it just now you can get reinfected? So the, like all bets are off. Well, you know, the, the, the new variants come up because they escape our antibody immunity. Um, we're still protected with all the new variants against severe disease, critical illness, um, you know, being in the ICU and dying. But people can get reinfected. And a study just came out and looked like that the average time to reinfect the reinfection in the UK was about 14 months. So right now it's becoming, yes, the new normal. And as we understand coronavirus, it's, it's regularly 
uh, mutating, changing its shape. It's evading our antibody immunity. And there's constantly uh, new variants that uh, come up, which are able to invade our antibody immunity and cause a repeat infection. Now, whether it's more easily spread to spread person to person, that takes a lot more uh, research to truly understand. But of course, it, it, there's more to immunity, as you well know, than antibody immunity. What about our other defenses? Yeah, so our other defenses are B cells and our, our, our T cells. Uh, so far, there's been no good evidence of invasion against that cellular part of the immune system. And it's that cellular part of the immune system that kicks in typically several days after infection that protects people from getting severely ill and ending up in the hospital. And then again, additionally, now we have medications. We have antiviral medications. I'm prescribing almost every day medications to people who are over 50, have other chronic conditions, testing positive, and those medications are resulting in a much faster resolution of symptoms and very few hospitalizations. There's been a, an online war being waged. I'm sure you've seen it on basically the same day that County Health, L.A. County Health, said we'd be going back to masks in a couple of weeks. Uh, County USC had this sort of briefing saying from their numbers, it's 10 percent of admissions for COVID, people going in with COVID versus uh, ending up with COVID when they tested them because they went in for something else. Uh, and they say they hadn't intubated anybody in like months. Um, and people in the ICU, if they go there, it's not pneumonia. Is that a huge contradiction between those two things? Well, I mean, if, if you look at actually L.A. County Department of Public Health data, and they do post on a monthly basis, um, the proportion that are there for COVID in all hospitals in L.A. County with actual pneumonia versus those that were tested positive um, based on their routine screening, everyone who's admitted to, to the hospital. And there's been an important flip. So a year ago, 80% of people who, who were admitted truly had COVID disease. Now it's about um, 70% of people who are admitted are incidentally there. And often they're not there with um, very severe pneumonia. So, I mean, it, it is a contradiction and it is a tension with, you know, part of the health department uh, saying we need to consider imposing masking because our hospitalizations are way up. We're going to lose our capacity to take care of people. And the other part of the health department saying, well, you know, we actually haven't intubated anybody. No one's in our intensive care unit. Other counties like Marin County and states like Massachusetts regularly report and look at these different subgroups, who's there for COVID, who's there with COVID. And I think that's very important. We need to move to that new level of more accuracy in our reporting. And uh, finally, and, and briefly, please, I, I'm curious about the title of that opinion piece. Bad news, COVID-19 numbers are pretty meaningless. Yeah, well, when we looked at the COVID numbers, we looked at the you know case counts, we looked at the positivity, we looked at the hospitalization, we looked at the death counts. In 2022, they're just not as reliable in um, kind of predicting who's going to end up sick and who's really dying from COVID as they were two years ago. So we're basically calling for new enhanced surveillance and new measures so we can get a better picture of really what's going on. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist, clinical professor, preventative medicine, USC Keck School of Medicine. And coming up, we will head back to London to talk about that brutal heat wave blanketing the UK and setting all-time record highs. And there's a sign war. 
That's right. Sign war. And it's heating up in one small town between fast food companies. Right now, though, doctors have been having trouble containing bacterial infections like MRSA because the bacteria have figured out how to build resistance to current antibiotics. That could change. There's a new one develops that appears to kill bacteria that are resistant to other medicines. With us to explain is Sean Brady, professor and head of the Laboratory of Genetically Encoded Small Molecules at the Rockefeller University, where this new antibiotic was developed. Sean, thanks for being here. So this sounds like good news. Uh, can you take me through how you did this in a way that I can, you know, understand? Sure, that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. Thanks for having me here today. So why don't I start with just a little bit of general background, if that's okay with you guys? Go for it. All right, so I would imagine that um, a number of your audience listeners probably have heard sometime in their life, whether it's back in high school or college, or maybe when they went to the doctor once, that most of the antibiotics we use today were actually originally discovered by looking at bacteria. That is, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, scientists went all over the world, cultured bacteria, and looked at the, the antibiotics they make. And that's what led to what's called the golden age of antibiotics. And most of the antibiotics we use today were found during that time period, almost 80 years ago. And unfortunately, as the years have passed, we've been using the same antibiotics for 50, 60, 70, 80 years. As you said in the introduction, bacteria have figured out how to get around those. And so that, that's a problem. And many people have undoubtedly heard about that problem. So what I want to say is that maybe it's not as bad as that doomsday scenario that we've run out of antibiotics and we have nothing left to look for. And the reason for that is that these same bacteria that gave us our original antibiotics, what we now know is that they have instructions hidden in their DNA for making more antibiotics. It's just we never knew how to figure out how to coax them into making them. And so that's what we've been working on. How do you, how do you take these hidden antibiotic instructions and make new antibiotics out of them? And and do they have these sort of instructions built in as a as a, a sort of a defense mechanism so they themselves can battle competing bacteria? Yeah, that's definitely the idea that there's this 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 warfare going on, especially in the soil. So most of these bacteria that give us antibiotics are found in the soil. It's interesting to say that if any of your listeners are walking across dirt today, they will step on thousands of bacteria making hundreds of different antibiotics as they battle each other. And so we're looking deeper into these bacteria to find other antibiotics they're likely using in this warfare event. Okay. So they've been trying to kill each other for years and years and years, and we're going to find the new instructions on how to do that. What part of the process are you in right now? How far until you actually, you know, get some of these things into, into us, into people? Yeah, so, so the, the early part of the process is we looked into these, into these bacteria, we predicted what the molecules might be, and then we synthesized them in the lab. So we used modern genomics and computers to predict the structures, and we synthesized them. And that's how we identified this compound we called silagosin. And where we are now is, is what we reported recently is that the compound has, I would say, four features that are, are interesting or exciting. One is that it, it kills bacteria in a new way. So it kills bacteria in a different way than other antibiotics. And therefore, hopefully, the resistance mechanisms that got around those old antibiotics won't work against this one. It doesn't show resistance. If we treat bacteria in the lab for upwards of a month, they never develop resistance to this, to this compound. And then if you go back into the clinic and you isolate bacteria that are resistant to other antibiotics that are found in human infections, all of the ones we've looked at so far are susceptible to our antibiotics. 
And so where we are now, it's been tested in a mouse. It works really nicely in a mouse. And now we have what is going to be a relatively long period of, of working through the whole process of can it ever make it into a human? And That's probably a decade long process. I, I was going to say, how long is a long period? 10 years, huh? Yeah, I mean, it, it, of course, I think everyone's spoiled by the, the rapid development of COVID vaccines, but that's not going to happen. That's not how most drugs work. You don't get them in 18 months. It's going to take a decade and um, lots of things can go wrong. Maybe it doesn't work in a human or maybe it does. That'd be awesome. Or, or maybe there are resistance that we don't know about yet. But at the moment, the, the signs are good that it's, it's a promising candidate to develop a, as, as we move forward. Well, we hope you have a very good 10 years. Yeah. All right. Working on this. Sean Brady, professor and head of the Laboratory of Genetically Encoded Small Molecules at Rockefeller University. So it's interesting. People walking on dirt are are crunching the antibiotics. So we should have our listeners send us their dirt. We should not. No. (laughs) Can we veto that one? (laughs) I can just say like big big truck pulling up in front. We get enough mail that we don't want. Yeah, I know. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felton. The heat wave bearing down on the U.K. right now. Temperatures never before reached in the country. It got up to 104 Fahrenheit at uh, Heathrow Airport. That's the all-time high there. And, and you have impeccable timing because you're, you're going to be going in that direction <laughs> like two weeks. soon. Yeah. You know, did you, like, sit down and, and plan it mm-hmm. that way? I thought, when can I be just the <laughs> really most roasty, sweaty person? Yeah. Yeah. Well, wow. <laughs> okay. So Hooray. That, that 104 degrees that we were talking about at Heathrow, it's led to a huge surge of fires, that kind of temperature all across London. All this is most people there. Well, they don't have air conditioning. With us now is a friend of the show, Darren Adam with LBC Radio. That's out of London. Also with us is Christy Ebai, who's founder of the Center for Health and Global Environment over at the University of Washington. She also happens to be in London right now visiting friends who put together the country's heat action plan. Both of you. Thanks for for suffering through the heat and being with us. Appreciate it. Uh, Darren, let, let, let's start with you. It, it, it sounds like one of a, a, an old joke line, but how hot is it? And we kind of know, but how is it experiencing it? Well, it is unbearable. It is completely intolerable. Actually, the highest temperature ever recorded was today in the UK, and it was, in fact, in Coningsby in Lincolnshire, which was just a shade higher, I think, than the temperature at Heathrow, and that was 40.3 degrees, the previous record 38.7 in July of 2019. So that record was broken by about a degree and a half. And meteorologists have been standing back in amazement and watching as those records fell across the country. It, how does it feel? It feels intolerable for me. I'm not a fan of the hot weather anyway at the best of times. I do have an air conditioning unit in our little flat in London in the bedroom, and that's been running literally all day. That has kept things bearable. But as I step out into the living room to have this conversation with you over Zoom, I'm regretting having said yes to your lovely <laughs> or, or at least not sitting here naked at the moment with the camera switched. Yes, it's radio. We'll keep it that way, yeah. right? Okay. Uh, Christy, so what's it like to, to have picked this time to visit, first of all, and then to actually be with your friends who put together this, this action plan for the country that now they're having to use right now? It is fascinating. I've been working in this field for about 25 years. Not that many years ago, there were fake projections of what temperatures in the UK could be in the year 2050. They were modeled, so they were based on, 
what was known about how climate change would be affecting temperatures. And if you compare the map for the projections of temperatures in the 2050s, it's very, very similar to the temperatures today. And, and I guess the, the conventional thinking is that it's all climate change caused, although we're always repeatedly warned by meteorologist types that you can never really pin any single event on climate change. But this is a trend throughout Europe. In fact, it's a trend throughout the U.S., is it not? It is a trend, and your friend is not exactly accurate. There is a field called detection and attribution, and it does look at individual events and determine the extent to which climate change increased the intensity of the event. The event last year in the Pacific Northwest was deemed virtually impossible without climate change. We're entering an era where almost all heat waves will become more intense because of climate change. More intense, and then they're getting longer too, right? And then the other thing that we always talk about is part of the problem is when you get the daytime temps up that high, the nighttime temps don't go that low, and you're just hot the whole time, and there's no there's no time where you can cool down. And those conditions are very dangerous. This is when people start getting into trouble with the heat, and that's why during the heat dome in the Pacific Northwest, there's a 69-fold increase in hospital-related presentations, in heat-related presentations to emergency departments. And there were projections out today based on experiences in earlier heat events that over 800 people in the UK could die from the temperature. Darren, back to you. Um, how are your, your fellow Londoners dealing with all this? I, I know that you're staying as best you can in the comfort of your singular air conditioning unit. but, but for, <laughs> Right up close to it. Yes. Yeah. But, but, yeah. For the re- but for the rest of the folks who, and most don't have, right, air conditioning. Don't. Yeah, what most they, don't, though, indeed. So what are they well, doing? Well, many, many of my colleagues who work with me on my show, which goes out between 1 and 4 a.m. in the morning across the U.K., they, like me, have to sleep during the day as well. And for them, without air conditioning, that has been completely unbearable. It's bad enough during the summer of any, uh, any sort of normal temperature to try to sleep during the day, but they're trying to get to sleep when the daytime temperature has been 35, 36, 37 degrees, completely impossible. Even for those on a normal schedule, even for sun seekers, those who genuinely and generally prefer summer to winter, a lot of them think that this is just too hot. Their limits have been breached. For, I have to say, though, for me, as someone who does not like the warm weather anyway, this is just, a, you know, a, no pun intended, a degree worse than summer would be for me anyway. And I am struck that generally in this country, not taking away from the exceptional nature of these temperatures for a moment, but we are very, very bad generally in this country at dealing with weather we are maybe six months away from reporting on people being stuck in their cars for 24 hours because major motorways have closed because of the snow and every time it happens we say oh it's exceptional and that can't be true if it happens all the time it can't be exceptional so although these temperatures are unprecedented and are terrifying we are generally pretty bad in this country when it comes to dealing with weather which is really weird given that talking about it seems to be a national obsession. <laughs> how, 
has it been getting around? I mean, has there, we've seen some of the stories, you know, there was a runway thing with the melting of the runway and trains are going yeah. slow. And we were talking to somebody yesterday saying uh, it's, it's really bad if you try and take the tube because it's a uh, hundred degrees down there. Yeah, well, Luton Airport is the airport where the runway melted. RAF Bryce Norton, Norton as well, which is an RAF uh, Army uh, Armed Forces base, also had the same problem. On some of the tracks at Vauxhall, I think, in the centre of London, railway workers were seen painting the railways white in an attempt to make them more reflective of the heat. Um Everything is grinding to a halt. You mentioned the underground. I've not been on it. I, I, I drive in London and I live very close to where I work. So I'm very, very fortunate that I've not had to descend into what looks absolutely unbearable. Much of the underground is very, very old. Most of it doesn't have air conditioning. So there doesn't seem to be a single mode of transport that has been unaffected. We've got older cars overheating as well. A warning from the breakdown agencies that, you know, this is not the kind of temperature that particularly older vehicles, are, are used to dealing with. So, Christy, in the short run, what sort of plan is workable for people in the U.K.? Because presumably this kind of, of, of what was considered an anomaly won't be an anomaly, and it's going to happen over and over again. What do they need to do? What does the country need to do? The country has a heat action plan. It has a very good heat action plan. And it's been gratifying to see all of the announcements going out over the media, every form of media, to make sure that people take action to protect themselves and that there's ways to keep cool without air conditioning, that there's ways, for example, to sit in front of a fan and squirt some water on yourself. The fan will help evaporate that water, and that will make you feel cooler. There are places that have cooling centers for people to go to. It's important that people think not only of protecting themselves, but also their family, their friends, their neighbors, that we know there's a long list of people who are at higher risk, adults over the age of 65, people with under underlying medical conditions, people who take certain drugs, such as beta blockers, that reduce the ability of your body to sweat. Another vulnerable group are pregnant women and making sure that we protect pregnant women, outdoor workers people who live in communities with fewer trees, like red line districts that we have in the U.S. And so making sure that we all take care of each other and make sure that we stay hydrated, we find places to stay cool, and don't exert yourself in these kinds of temperatures. Do you think that we as a, as a population are starting to realize more than we used to that yeah, we heard these warnings before, and we thought it was a long, long ways to go and a long way away. But now it's becoming more apparent that this is something that is happening, and these kind of things are going to become more typical as we go through the next 10, 20 years? That's what climatologists are telling us, and the weather is cooperating. Unfortunately for all of us, that yes, we're seeing more of these kinds of events. They are more intense, and we're breaking temperature records in unprecedented numbers and by unprecedented degrees of change. In the Pacific Northwest, we broke temperature records by 11 degrees Fahrenheit. Usually when you break temperature records, it's by tenths of degrees. You heard it's several degrees here in the UK, and the Pacific heat dome was 11 degrees Fahrenheit. Darren, um, I guess it isn't as, as simple as, as telling people there, you know what, what you need to do is just, if you have the money anyway, go out and, and, and pop in an air conditioning unit into your window because buildings have to have 
the capacity, you know, for the electricity to support mm. air conditioners, which are an enormous drain on, on power systems, right? Well, part of the problem is, I think, in this country, housing stock is built and created and sold with the intention of uh, persuading buyers and persuading people who will live there that it, you know, the property gets the sun and that's a good thing and it keeps the heat in and that's a good thing. Now, obviously, you want properties to be insulated, but we're, we're just not very good at finding ways of reflecting heat, repelling heat. I mean, I, I also, together with the air conditioning unit, I have tinfoil gaffer taped to my window and, you know, all kinds of jokes about breaking bad will follow as a consequence of doing such a thing. But <laughs> that's fine. I'm, I'm quite happy to take those jokes because that does reflect the heat substantially. I think there's going to need to be more thinking along those lines. And as I said earlier on, just being better at dealing with weather. Uh, as as Christy mentioned, there are lots of places that do have air conditioning, public buildings. We have, for example, I had an email the other day from my local public library. In fact, it was a Facebook post saying, do share this. If anyone is suffering in the heat, tell them they can come to our premises, they can come to our facility and literally chill out for a couple of hours and escape from the heat. The one thing I would say is that um, this is proving to be a typical British summer in one sense only, and that is it is forecast to end, at least in the short term, pretty quickly and pretty comprehensively. The forecast for the next few days will see a drop of about 15 degrees, and that is Celsius, and thunderstorms are forecast for much of the country tomorrow. So there does appear to be at least a temporary end in sight. Darren, we will let you run back to the AC now. Uh, Darren Adam, presenter, LBC Radio out of London, and Christy Ebi, founder of the Center for Health and Global Environments, University of Washington. They are in London also right now. And you're going to head there soon. Yeah, see you in two weeks. As the temperature climbs. Yeah, it'll be 90 degrees probably. Take, a, take an AC with you. I'll change my phone thing to Celsius so I can talk to people about, oh my gosh, it's <laughs> it's 35. Which sounds nice here. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. oh, it's cool. Yeah. All right, more in-depth coming up. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Korean barbecue restaurants popular across Southern California, but sometimes the workers, they have it rough. That prompted employees at Genwa, which has locations in Beverly Hills, Mid-Wilshire, and downtown L.A., to form a union. Now momentum is growing at other Korean restaurants and grocery stores to unionize, too. But it's not always easy. Kent Wong is director of the UCLA Labor Center. Kent, thanks for being with us. Why is it not always easy? What we see is that the restaurant industry is uh, one of the more difficult to organize. The workplace tends to be small, and there is frequently a high turnover among the workers. And so the breakthrough that we've seen with the Genwa workers has really served as an encouragement to many other workers within the restaurant industry. And do you see it as a breakthrough that will probably lead to some more of this being tried? Because sometimes you need to do it one place for other places to look at and go, you know, they did it, so we could too. Absolutely. We've seen this uh, in many different industries across the country, especially uh, in the last uh, year. Uh, there are um, more than 100 Starbucks uh, stores which have filed for unionization, and a number have succeeded in those organizing drives. That has clearly encouraged other Starbucks workers to follow suit. Similarly, there have been organizing campaigns in the fast food industry, and uh, this we have not seen in many, many years. And so I do think that the cumulative impact of these organizing drives has encouraged other workers to do the same. 
And I know throughout the years, restaurant owners have always said, yeah, but if we allowed or had unionization in uh, in our restaurants, uh, we'd have to either raise prices to an unacceptable level to customers or worse, we'd have to close. Are we seeing any evidence of that? We are not seeing evidence of that. That is the usual uh, excuse given on why wages are kept um, embarrassingly low. What we see increasingly, however, is that there is a growing worker shortage. In my view, it's not because there is a shortage of workers, there is a shortage of good paying jobs. And so workers, especially the pandemic, are not interested in putting their lives at risk for um, minimum wage poverty jobs. And so I do think that the so-called worker shortage is strengthening the bargaining power of workers to demand better wages and better working conditions. Still got to get everybody on the same page, though. Is that sometimes tricky? There's the story that was written about this. There was a line in there about, you know, a lot of these businesses, especially some of the Koreatown ones, you have Asian workers, you have Latino workers, different languages. Sometimes the owners treat them differently. There has historically been efforts to keep workers divided based on race, nationality and language barriers. When workers have successfully overcome those, in the case of the Genwa workers, we have seen a unity that has emerged among the Latino and Asian workforce, and that secured the organizing victories at Genwa. And when we talk about at we- uh, restaurants unionizing workers, are we talking about everyone from the kitchen staff to the wait people, or is it does it depend on category of worker? These were wall-to-wall organizing campaigns that included all workers within the restaurants. Even the Hotel and Restaurant Employees Union here in Los Angeles has mainly focused on hotels because they're much larger institutions with a relatively more stable workforce. And uh, it's been difficult organizing restaurants, but with what we see at Starbucks, at fast foods, and now in uh, Genwa, uh, this absolutely is an encouragement for other restaurants to follow suit. Genwa, of course, denies some of this, but you mentioned people being underpaid. Uh, How severely were they being underpaid? Well, um, I think that it's best to talk to the workers themselves. Uh, These are very uh, difficult, labor-intensive jobs. Uh, They are working on their uh, feet for hours and hours and hours um, and um, uh, doing multiple jobs simultaneously. And uh, based on that, uh, the thought of these workers was that they were not making Uh, a living wage. And so uh, the fact that they were able to successfully unionize and improve their wages and benefits uh, was an important breakthrough. Ken Wong, director of the UCLA Labor Center. Well, there's a war. It's going on right now in a small town of Marshfield, Missouri. That's near Springfield. It's a war of words between highly successful fast food businesses. McDonald's and Dairy Queen started to trade jabs and insults on their big signs outside the restaurants. And then Wendy's got involved, which was good because if you've seen Wendy's on Twitter, this is like what they do. Yeah. They respond to things. Uh, other businesses in the town, they've started their own sign wars. The whole thing blew up. It's not nasty, though. It's it's giving everybody a lot of laughs and boosts to the businesses. With us is Eve Matheny, Director of Brand Marketing for Hammer Enterprises, manages the Wendy's in Marshfield. And then the mayor of Marshfield, Natalie McNish. Uh, Mayor, let's start with you. McDonald's got this going, right? They sure did. And and tell us what they said and and how this kind of evolved and and how fun it's been. Uh, Well, McDonald's uh, posted a sign 
asking if DQ right across the street wanted to start a sign war. And um, we, we all saw the sign as, as we went through that town. Somebody posted it on Facebook. And, and we all kind of waited with anticipation to see what would happen next. And sure enough, Dairy Queen uh, responded with, we would, but we're busy making ice cream. And as soon as the ice cream was out, uh, nobody's been able to capture it since. It's been so much fun. And, and we, I guess we should explain also to listeners that, that the reason for that comment uh, about that they're busy making ice cream is because McDonald's is kind of notorious. It's always broken. <laughs> <for> having, <laughs> having their ice cream machines Absolutely. not working, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Eve, uh, okay, so, so it starts off between these two competitors, sort of McDonald's and across the street, Dairy Queen. Why did Wendy's get involved? Well, I got an email on Thursday asking me, um, they sent me some photos actually about McDonald's and DQ, and they said, hey, someone has challenged us, uh, challenged us on a time war. You know, would you be interested and in, can you come up with something for us? And so that's how it got started on Thursday. And, and ever since then, I've been sending them messages every day. So, so it was the Wendy's workers going, well, these two are doing it. We want, we want in. Please let us in. <laughs> Absolutely. We're just down the street where everybody's on the same street. So we're just down the street. So it's been really, really fun. So, Madam Mayor, uh, how many other businesses, if any, are also joining this this sort of war? Any others? I think just about every business in our community and even some public organizations have gotten involved. Um, a lot of our small businesses have joined in, including um, little retail boutiques. Um, our local veterinary clinic got one in today. Um, even our public school district and our public health department have, have quipped in. So well, it, it's just been so much fun. Wait, wait, the, the, the vet, what, what possible sign would the vet put up? <laughs> oh, they said it's all fun and games until someone gets coned. That's <laughs> <laughs> very good. Eve, what have you been sending to, to your Wendy's? Um, I think the first day I sent them hot and crispy fries don't arch. <laughs> okay, so that so the first one. So uh where does this uh mayor where does this end do you think? Does it end? You know, some wars go on for many many years decades. years and years. Uh, yeah. Is this going to be a, <laughs> is this a war of attrition or or is somebody going to emerge as the the victor? Oh, I, at this point, I don't know. There's quite a bit of life still left in these sales, and uh, I, I just look forward to tomorrow's post. Yeah, did it kind of just evolve naturally? Because the, the the big guys, the fast food restaurants started it, and then some of the other places, like you said. It, what has this done for, like, Main Street and knowing that, uh, all right, you're going to go out and look for signs, like now specifically you're going to get out of the neighborhood and probably do some shopping because you want to see what everybody's saying. Well, that's absolutely it. And I've had people um, who live in other communities say, hey, I didn't know you had that in Marshfield. I've even had people that live within our community say, hey, did you see so-and-so sign? That reminded me I needed to go by there, right? And so I, I think it has done a lot for our community to bring visibility to both our corporate businesses and our small businesses. Um, and, and it's just, it, it's really brought... Um, Visibility to Marshfield in general. You know, we're a, a close knit small community, but we're a group of great individuals, and uh, I couldn't be more proud. Eve, is there any indication that all of this signage is increasing business? You know, bringing in more money. I mean, they were they were very busy that they didn't have time to put up my message today. 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll get to it later because there's some. I have to say, I mean, the managers, everybody's having a lot of fun, and they really, really love our customers. So we're having a lot of fun. Do you think this is like needed after everything? Little things like this. Sometimes we see these stories and they take off because we all kind of need like a smile and a laugh, especially after the last few years. Absolutely. I mean, it's been really difficult in the labor and working very hard, long hours with what's going on, you know, in the world right now. So we all need a little smile. Mayor, I'm curious. Everybody seems to have a sign in your town. Do you? The city actually doesn't. You need a giant one on City Hall. You're the only ones without a sign? (laughs) (laughs) you got to come up with a sign. we, we have not posted a sign yet, but uh, we'll get on that. Keyword is yet. Yeah, yet. Okay. All right. Get the council together. Start thinking of something. Um, Marshfield Mayor Natalie McNish and Eve Matheny, Director of Brand Marketing for uh, Hamra Enterprises, manages the Wendy's there in Marshfield. The sign war. We should do that in L.A. Yeah. We got creative types around here, right? Yeah, but there'd be so many signs. That <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah, it's already enough billboards around. Yeah, that's true. All right. Uh, more in depth tomorrow.